whoa, 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 man. You, you can't use that. Why? I, that's Metallica. I understand, man. I don't know about that. I don't think it is. No, you, no, oh, yeah, no, no, you're right, it's not. No. Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColdSploitation.com, and I'm joined by my co-host, Martin. How's it going? I'm doing pretty well uh, on a balmy day today. As it has been for the past three weeks now. It's funny because, uh, yeah, it's such a balmy day, and yet we're watching a film that really leads us into the Halloween season, um, directed by John Carpenter. Woo! Uh, it looks like it's set during a nice autumn autumnal period. Uh, and we're drinking, we drank at Oktoberfest while watching, and it's a little bit on the hotter end today, so it's kind of an ironic It's not even twist. that hot out. It's, it's not, but it's, it's like just 77, muggy and balmy, so, and it's, it's, yeah, there's, it's uh, so there's an ass stench in the room as we record this session. Um, yeah, so today we, uh, we were revisiting, we actually, we didn't announce this episode, uh, in the, the last episode when we did Ant-Man and the Wasp, because we didn't know what we were doing. And then you just so happened to see this on your table, and like, let's do this! Yeah, we uh, so Scream Factory has really been going back through the uh, unreleased John Carpenter films, the, the stuff that really hasn't had a Blu-ray release, um, or at least if it has had a Blu-ray release, it was done in slipshod fashion. It wasn't really like one of those films that um, was treated with you know Spec- like a nice a nice scan, uh, more special features. Uh, it's one of those you know that kind of slipped through. So they were going back through and they they've have uh, about, I think they have three or four uh, film rights to his, to his works that really haven't been released yet. So they did, they've already released Memoirs of an Invisible Man. If you haven't heard of that one, you're not alone. Most people have really not heard of this film or don't know. It. It's not very popular in John Carpenter canon, but it stars Chevy Chase as an Invisible Man character. It's sort of a... A comedy, really. It, it, it's more of a comedy than anything else, and especially even from John Carpenter. It's sort of a departure from what he has done in the past. And though he's done comedy aspects to his works, like you know, um, s- some of his films are are really based on like comedic antics. Um, say b- Big b- Trouble in Little China say- being like the most prominent, I would say, right? Yeah. Um, it's probably his most comedic film. Um, so they released that one. Uh, they're, they were also releasing, um, uh, what's the other one that they're releasing? Ghost of Mars. No, no, they're <laughs> not doing that one. That one is, they're like not touching that one. At least for now, they're not, they haven't well, released. Well, you might as well wait. Three, in three years, it'll be 20 years. So yeah. Get the 20th anniversary. You're like, hey. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know what it is? It's someone's watching me. Uh, again, and not not another well known John Carpenter film. But the one that they that was are a TV re- movie, wasn't it? Yes, but the one that they are releasing that um, people do know pretty well, and it's one of his most respected works. Um, besides, you know, the big ones, and he has a lot of them. But 
uh, one that's really well respected within the community, especially for a late or like a later film in John Carpenter's canon in the '90s, is uh, in the Mouth of Madness. And that's the one that we chose to do for this episode, primarily because it does help lead into our Halloween season a little bit, um, and also because neither of us have actually seen it prior to this this episode, uh, which is kind of surprising. I'm a little bit ashamed to admit that I've never seen it before. Um, so we wanted to check it out and see what it was all about. I know a lot about it. I've seen a lot about it. When I saw John Carpenter in concert, uh, he did play the primary theme from this film, uh, which I thought was a departure from his normal soundtrack for sure. Um, which we played for you at the beginning of the episode, the the Metallica esque hard rock song, which was very prevalent in the nineties culture. Anyway, uh, you'd see it quite what a bit. Would have fit with the, that, uh, one like rock song from Leprechaun Two that we used for the intro for that. Yeah, you know the kids just lying on his bed rocking out. So it kind of remind me of. Except that one's a little bit, a little bit more grungier. It's like this one's like let's make it a little medley. Yep. Like you know, I've got to have like you know, you know. That one you got um, Dario Argento really had a a kick towards hard rocks features in his in his soundtracks after like it would be more towards the late 80s he would feature a lot more uh how about new year's evil that we covered yeah. uh which would have been another 80s cut but still primarily a punky soundtrack new, new wave yep uh so there was a there was definitely and especially like in in some of these uh early 90s films and and uh in the mouth of madness was released in 1994 and you're talking about things that we've covered on the show before the mangler being another one that would have had a very uh rock centric soundtrack to it um just a lot of these they tended to go more towards that uh in some ways because they like to hire out local talent too so some of these songs that you would hear in a in a 90s movie were like not even big names they were more like uh you know since the movie was low budget they would get just like garage rock bands to come and do a theme for them and that was the theme uh, that's not the case within the Mouth of Manus. Uh, John Carpenter actually wrote the theme with Jim Lang, who you you said I didn't know this. I, I that the name didn't ring a bell to me at all. He composed the music for uh, Hey Arnold. That's a pretty big a big departure because yeah. that's nice. Uh, you know, nice jazzy. You know, mellow. <laughs> you know, if you're not a, a '90s kid like us, you might not know the theme as well as we do. It's not, not even just the theme. Like I, I to me, like uh, the theme uh, for Hang Arnold is not really. It's like more the end theme, like the true. It's that nice yeah, like mix of like very... j- jazz and big band. Um, yeah. you, that's you know, interesting yeah, too because it, you're right. You're right. No, it is a really big difference. I remember when I saw like the opening credits, like composed by you know score done by John Carpenter and Jim Lamb. Like I know who that is. I had to think about it and as soon as I looked it up. It was like. Fucking knew it. And what was the other uh, soundtrack that you said Jim Lang worked on uh, that was another prominent sort of horror movie or something like that? No, it wasn't a prominent. It was another Carpenter film. It was uh, the film. Oh, Body Bags. Bags, That's right. Body Bags, which was another, um, which is an anthology film uh, that does have another hard rock score like this. So it's interesting that he did like the hard rock aspects of John Carpenter films like In the Mouth of Madness and Body Bags. And then he did... Hey Arnold, and it wouldn't have been that much longer after six years. Yeah, yeah. really, six years that five, long? Five, six years. Hey, yeah, from Body Bags. Yeah, because be five years. No, hey no. I, yeah, Hey Arnold was what year? Ninety eight. Ninety eight. So, so yeah, interesting. For uh, four years from uh, five, five years from uh, 
in the Mouth of Madness, he went on and got rid of all of his Metallica-esque stuff. Well, I was gonna say, I just find it funny, because, um, it's not like he had, like, that big of, like, uh, he only had, like, a couple, like, those two, like, I think, like, one other thing before he did Hey Arnold. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, like, what made Craig Bartlett be like, Let's get this guy. Guy, you know, do this. Yeah, interesting. So he didn't even do any more like Nickelodeon stuff because generally, like, if you got a foot in the door, no, at hey Arnold or uh, at Nickelodeon, I mean, or something like that. No, he like, just just did huh. that. Hey Arnold, very interesting. That's it's a uh, weird the trajectory of certain people in in Hollywood and stuff like that. What Mark, they did, Mark Mothersbaugh would be one of them. Yep. How you know from Devo, Devo to, to Rugrats and then forever on after the Rugrats score, kind of copping that for Wes Anderson films. Yeah. And, that's really interesting. Uh, so In the Mouth of Madness, though, um, has kind of become another staple in John Carpenter's genre. Or uh, canon, I'm sorry, genre. Um, I wouldn't say that it's probably one of his more most popular works. Uh, probably that would be, obviously, Halloween, The Thing. Um, I would say probably Next They Live. Yeah. Uh, then Escape from New York. Big Trouble in Little China. I and, think it'd be, I think it'd be a tie with, oh for boy, uh, for Escape from you New York. You know what? Though and, it's hard to say because I left out the fog, and the fog would be up there as well. I really don't know. I don't know. Just for horror fans or for the layman? I was just saying for John Carpenter in general, the most the average films that someone would you know the, the of popularity for John Carpenter movies. I, I guess I would say I I probably put it as Halloween, um, The Thing. They live. Then I think I would go The Fog. Then I would say Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China. And then I think it's a toss-up between Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth Madness. I mean, see, for me, I would say Halloween, obviously, then The Thing, then Escape from New York, because that's got a lot of homage. It, it, been homage. More so than They Live. It's probably been homaged and, you know, recognized yeah. more. Like, more people are going to be apt to recognize Kurt Russell's snake. True. Than, you know, Roddy Piper in They Live. True. Um, but then probably They Live and then Big Trouble in Little China. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know. It's, it's hard because they all, and in some ways, they all have a different place in people's, you know, interests than others. And I, it's hard to say, but it, it just goes to show how many actually... Huge hits that John Carpenter had. You know what? I lied. Drop, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. That's true as well. We missed that one as well. So that's it's really hard to hard to say where they would fall. Although I would say that In the Mouth of Madness probably comes in at a later second entry. Second yeah, yeah, definitely. In, in the Which same for, way, for, for, for say for for such a great you know because we you know we both love John Carpenter. Yeah, and for such a great film, you know. Film director, you know, second tier for him is not bad, you know. Exactly. They'd be, they'd be like saying, um, you know, like, oh, for Stanley Kubrick, you know, maybe, you know, Full Metal Jacket's kind of like a second tier film. Sure. Okay. Still a great film, though. Yep. You know? And I would say, actually, you know, in, in some ways, I wouldn't agree with, like, the average area of second tier films. Because I would say Prince of Darkness is one of my favorite films oh, from I John Carpenter. Which I have not seen that. You should really see it. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but Prince of Darkness... Uh, has a very similar tone and pacing and style to In the Mouth of Madness. And so we'll talk about that in a little bit in, in terms of like how that fits in with his, um, you know, with his canon. But uh, very interesting to see that how many films John Carpenter really has had that are hits 
and where he went to in well, the I guess 90s. You could, well, I guess you I guess you could say hits after the fact. Sure. Outside of Halloween, they were box office, you know. Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, most of yeah, most of them. The thing wasn't really profitable. Huge hits at the box office, uh, but became cults. Like I would say we even talked about with the thing. People hated the thing when it came out. Yeah. You know, which looking back, I mean, it's funny when you look back at like certain you know reviews for certain films, like, oh, this film's trash, and then they're like, oh, you know, it's kind of you know, it's kind of good because They Live wasn't a big hit. Um, big Trouble in Little China definitely wasn't a big hit. Um. Well, it's funny, too, because they really uh, marketed very specific aspects of culture. And I would think, and I don't know because I didn't look at any of the historical context, but um, I would think that In the Mouth of Madness would have been a pretty appealing film to people in the 90s because it was very much based on some cultural norms at the time and we'll take a look at that but despite the lovecraftian influence the the more overwhelming lovecraftian influence that maybe people who weren't really into horror wouldn't get totally the other aspect of it is that it really riffs on the horror novelists the gore novelists of the time like stephen king dean Koontz, clyde barker some of the others who would pu- pump out novels and have a very distinctive cover layout for their novels. It was very much a cultural thing at the time. Well, not like that, too. You had a renaissance, if you think about it, with, like, things at, during that time period. You also had, going on, Creepshow. Mm-hmm. You had, for kids, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Goosebumps books and the, that TV show, you know, which is basically this, except... Tales from the Crypt would have been yeah. running through that time, too. Yep. Uh, you know, so it's much more... A lot of things kind of combined that, you know, make it fit definitely within, like, that early 90s timeline. Because as I told you when we were watching, like, this film, say, with its premise and what the hell's going on with it, wouldn't even get past, like, you'd, like, have the outline for it and some film executive, no, we're not fucking doing this. This is fucking, you know. Lovecraftian elements aren't really that popular as it is. Uh, I think they've gotten more now. They have now. Like, like lo- we, had, we had The Void. Um, You know, we've, we had... uh a few others that incorporate Lovecraftian elements, but the whole, um, like the really, like the mythos of Cthulhu or something like that has not really been explored that often besides like specific films, Dagon being one of them, which is getting its release by Umbrella Entertainment pretty soon on Blu-ray. But the, the whole thing, I mean, I would say that probably In the Mouth of Madness is one of the better odes to Lovecraftian horror that we've gotten. Um, that seems to understand the elements behind what Lovecraft was going for when he was writing his deeply racist stories and things like that. Um, but I, I, as we'll talk about, we'll, we'll get into all that. We'll get into the the Stephen King and, and horror novel influence. We'll get into the Lovecraftian elements. We'll and get into the, the, the acting in this we'll say, film. I'll say, you're well-versed in that. I'm not. I don't really know anything about Lovecraft. It's never been something to appeal, yeah. a, that's ever really appealed to me. I mean, maybe if I went and kind of did, you know. I think if you uh, started reading some more about it, you would get maybe find into it. it. Yeah. But I mean, like, even the same thing, like Stephen King. I've never read a Stephen King novel. I mean, great. I don't really care for novels on the whole to begin with. Like, much more of a newspaper and, like, yeah historical text type yeah. person but that's why you should stick to lovecraft stories because they tend to be on the shorter end uh sometimes novella like maybe like, i'd find but, moby dick and it's 800 pages interesting because like 700 of it's not even about like 
chasing the whale. It's, it's about, basically about whale, the history of history. whaling. You know, yeah. like, ooh, this is, you know, this is interesting to me. Well, then you should read It by Stephen King because that's a thousand pages and a lot of it takes uh, Dairy, the town itself, into account as like sort of giving it its own character passage. So you might like it because it gives the history of Dairy. Well, that's just being bloated at that point. Cut it down. Yeah. There wasn't an editor that's like, come on, Stephen. Well, no, yeah, he yeah. actually, as w- he needed the editor that's in, in The Mouth of Madness, <laughs> who seems to be keeping Sutter Kane's novels at a pretty considerable 400-page length, so. I know, every, every one, like. Yeah, there's it's no, basically, there's basically no, the same thickness. Yeah, yeah there's, no, there's no Dark Tower, like, oh, nope. here you go. Yep. You know, 30-volume book. Yeah, no, it, it, they, that editor really <laughs> seemed to keep him con- concise. What a name, by the way. Sutter Kane. That, I love that. That's like, you know, like. Yeah, it reminds me of, like, um... Part noir, part, you know... Yeah, it reminds me of, like, noir. It reminds me of, um, the guy from Poltergeist, uh, which I can't even remember his name right now, but it reminds me of that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great name. It's it's one of those things that really sticks out to you, especially because the name Sutter Kane keeps coming up again. Like, the actual uh, announcing of the name is really important for this film. So, yeah, it's... It was a it was an interesting uh, choice from Carpenter. All right, let's take a break real quick because we've we've already gotten quite a bit into this film, so we we got to save some for the the rest of the podcast. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's an interesting film. It is I an think, interesting. I think film. it's a, I, after watching it, I'd say it's probably a good choice. Yeah, yeah. Good there's choice. stuff to talk about. It's it's a, it's a it's a interesting film with a lot to unpack. So we'll do that in a second. Uh, but first, let's. Uh, Let's take a look at what we're drinking tonight because I did pick up the Saranac uh, German Roots Pack, which they like to say on this pack, it's the German Roots Pack, when we all know it's their fall pack. It's it's what they consider to be the fall release, even though it's out in mid-July. And I think they've and begun yet- calling it German Roots because they don't want to stoop to like having to say, oh, it's our fall pack, but we put it out, you know, two months early. And then by the time October rolls around, nary an Oktoberfest in sight. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Which we bitch about every yeah. year. I, oh. I got to admit, though, I am part of the problem because yeah, you did bought I, it. Not, not only did I, I see that German Roots pack is out for like one day and I pick it up. And you sent me a text knowing I'd get angry like yep. I couldn't help myself. It's, it's absolutely partly my fault. Well, yeah. I am the consumer that sees the pack and is like, you know, I have conflicting feelings about it, but I love Oktoberfest, so I'm going to pick it up. See, that's the thing, too, because we talk about it a thousand times every time the season rolls around. We're both both our favorite style beers, a nice Marzen beer, nice yeah. Oktoberfest. The love, the beer love of my life right now has been Genesee's Ruby Red Kolsch. I can't expound upon enough how much I love that beer and what a game changer it has been for me in the summertime. And we, and we did do it. We, yeah. we did, you know. And that's literally all I've been drinking. The cream ale variety pack from them. <laughs> Siri is really, Siri's really picking that up. She was really talking about German. She was trying to read the entire conversation we just had in German, so. But, anywho... I've been really, I've fallen so much in love with that pack. I haven't really drank anything, even the cream ale variety pack from Jenny that I was really looking forward to. I've only bought it once because mm-hmm. that ruby red is just so good. And they don't fucking have it out. It's gone. 
October, they're, they're already prepped they're and getting get, their Oktoberfest ready. And that makes me angry because it's been 100 plus degrees and humid every day for the past three weeks. As much as I love Oktoberfest, I do not want a multi, heavy, taxing, sweaty beer to drink on these hot, humid days. It just oh, it makes me oh, it makes me so mad. But, I, 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 I just can't. But we did it. We did drink it today. And I, I mean, so here's the thing. I think that Marzen style beers have become sort of popular, even though they're, you know, the, technically a lot of them are considered an Oktoberfest. Marzen style seems to be popping up, even though it's not fall. Like I had at Brown's, they, they were already making their Marzen style. And that was in like June. Um, They already had their Marzen style out. They you know, they, I, I guess maybe they're making it even though, you know, technically it's an Oktoberfest, but they think people still want to drink it even if it's warm out. And I, I won't say that I don't not enjoy an Oktoberfest on a really hot day, but it's the malty heaviness of it that really makes it a beer that you don't want to, like, drink on a really hot day. It's, it's great on a crisp, cool night. But not just the fall, but in the winter, too. I would yeah. love, like, to take a like, go Imagine, like, a nice Mars and stuff, but they add, like, maybe, like, some... Nutmeg, coriander. <laughs> sure, you know sure. to make make it like a Christmas sure. version. Wouldn't that be delightful? Uh, it would be nice, it, and it's. I think I understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, Marsins they just do tend to be heavier. They tend to be uh, what especially I would consider like, thicker. Let's say especially American style. Yeah, com- you know, yeah, yeah to- because German style Marsins they really tend to be on the lighter side. Uh, they're still malty, but like compared to like kind of like how, uh, and you know we're laymen's when it comes to beer knowledge we know like styles and all that but well, i guess to be honest with you i've never tr- i haven't traveled to germany so, so i don't know that we only had we've only tried like a couple of like actual like spot and then you know hoffenbrau yep um but you know those ones were like you know lighter compared it's kind of like like the american ipa with how in a west coast style how they yeah. hop the shit out of it compared to say if you were to have a english style ipa right. which is much more much different much drier bat more much more balanced same thing like our style of pale ale versus like a brit you know yep you know a british or a belgian pale ale for that matter too you know so it's kind of yeah it's it's interesting how they do it and how we call what we call ger- the german marzen style has been really malted down quite a bit more than what you get from a German style. I will admit, I prefer the American style. I I think it makes sense for us that it's just in the fall. That's what I want is a well, mu- much more malty beer, heavier, nice for a crisp. Because I love the crispness. That's that's a big thing for me about fall. I love. I don't like it being really hot. I would really prefer it to be like fifty degrees, kind of chilly. Yeah. You gotta wear flannel. You're outside. You're drinking a Mars. Even and you that feel that's great. Like- you know, Even at not, that temperature, you could, you know, if you yeah. didn't want to wear a sweater, you could just wear your t-shirt. Yeah, you know, not too hot, not too cold. It's perfect. Yeah. And so that's what that Marzen is supposed to do. It's supposed to, you know, you don't want a winter warmer because then you're going to be toasty. Yeah, and- really, really toasty inside and pretty, pretty uh, bogged down with all mm-hmm. that nutmeggy flavor. But at the same time, that's what I get from a Marzen. That's what I love. So yeah, it's not great for the for the hot weather, but we did have one tonight. I, I do love the Saranac Oktoberfest. Um. Getting to our point, though, of the one that we actually wanted to bring up that we've never had on the show, because I believe we've done Saranac Oktoberfest before. Yes. We've definitely done it before. Um, the one that we have on the show today is the 1888 Pills, which is a new beer in this Saranac pack for the German roots. 
Now they do German roots all the time, but they kind of do a change uh, out. Third year now. Yeah, it's the third year. I think, I, think, is, yeah. I think they started it when we first started doing the p- podcast. Because the first year when they had the Darktober. Yeah, Fest, one of, we, the probably my favorite beer that they've ever made is the Darktoberfest. That we constantly, you know, just yeah. opine about. I wish Saranac would like just send me a batch of the Darktoberfest. Well, be great. Too. Yeah, I would love it too for the yeah. show. Just we should we'll talk about it every yeah. week if well, you want us to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Give us an FX Matt like brewing sign. We'll be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> Darktober. Yeah, I know. Um. Yeah, so they do it every year uh, now for the past three years. They change out, like, a couple of the beers in there. Uh, like was, you said, Darktoberfest was one. Last time they had a different style Mars and beer. It was a fest beer, I think they called it. I would say um, there's two there's, – usually it's a four-pack. Yep. I mean, of, you know, four different styles. The Black Forest is always in there, which we've reviewed before, and that's yep. their Schwartz beer, and it's probably the greatest black lager you'll ever have. Um so good, even the toffee-nosed snobs at uh, Beer Advocate, the bros gave it a 95. Yep. So, and um, they're Oktoberfest. Those are the Those two. Those are the mainstays. And then, this year, they mixed it up, and they put in one that we haven't had, which is Das Boot. Yep. Um, which, I, from the looks of I don't know, but from the looks of it, kind of like it might be like a Vienna lager. It's Vienna lager. Yeah. I have had it. Um, I had I had one before. Um, it's good. Um, Vienna lager style, hard to mess up. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's anything like super go out of your way to try, but it's a, it's a good beer. I, I like it. I would still replace the Darktoberfest with it immediately. But uh, so that was the, yeah, that was the one. We haven't had that one on the show before. And then the other one is the 1888 Pills. And the 1888 Pills, I would say, is um, very reminiscent, although not the same, but, but similar to Sam Adams Noble Pills that they put out in the spring. You think about spring and fall, not not so different in the in the style of you know it's in the spring it's going from colder to warmer in the fall it's going from warmer to colder. So I would say it makes like, sense for the eighteen eighty eight pills. It's more of like kind of like a beginning fall beer, mm-hmm. like right when it's starting to get a little bit cooler, but yeah. it's still kind still, of warm. You're still getting a hoppy flavor to it. Um, not very malty at all. It is no, I wouldn't say so. And I would say. Comp- uh, Compared to uh, Sam Adams' Noble Pills, it's not nearly as hoppy. Because the Noble Pills has four different hops. Five. Five different hops. Whereas this 1888 Pills, I believe, only really has like one or two. I would say it has a Citra. And probably a Noble. Yeah, and I would say, you know, that's probably about it. Um, So, I I think it's good. I I mean, again, I don't think it's something that you would really go out of your way to pick up. But, if you know, I think for the most part, the German Roots Pack... If people are getting it, they're really getting it for the Oktoberfest and maybe just to try the new stuff that's in there. And I would say, again, this and works out fine. I'm saying, if you don't like it, you can just get yourself a 12-pack at Oktoberfest. Yep. I think this works out fine. You know, it's it's good. It's I, I wouldn't ever go out of my way to get, like, a six-pack of 1888 pills. But I think it does its job. And, it, and, and with that said, too, I'm not a huge fan of the Noble Pills either. Like, I'll have it, but it's not something that I really go out of my way to get. Yep. I feel like if you're going to do it, you might as well either just go for the pale ale or IPA choice or go for a Pilsner. And really in between, there's not a whole lot of variation between them. Like, you know, it's one or the other. It's it's trying to build up sort of like a middle ground, but I don't think there's that much deviation between the two where you would, you know. Kind of like how they have the India pale lager, the IPL. Exactly. The IPL doesn't really do that much for me either because 
what really the, is... say the crispness of a lager compared to like a pale ale gets lost when you put that many hops in it. I just don't really see the... With those IPLs, I just don't see the difference between them enough where I would be like, oh, yes, I love the IPLs. I'd rather have an IPL than an IPA. It just doesn't... Maybe it's just... Maybe it's me. Maybe no, it's I my don't. Dis- undiscerning taste No, because no, I agree, too. I agree. Like, you know, like... If if you didn't tell me that the 1888 was a pilsner, technically, you know, a hoppy pilsner, I'd be like, you might think it's a pale ale. Yeah, just yep. like, no, it's like kind of like a slightly hoppier than their their regular pale ale. Yep, you know, less less, you know, because their pale ale is also pretty malty too, because it's more of a kind of closer to an English style than it is like an American uh, pale ale. I'm like, oh, it's kind of like you know, kind of like an American pale ale, but yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's good though. I mean, it's it's definitely a Solid choice if, if that's what you got. So check it out. That's in the Saranac German Roots Pack. And you won't be disappointed because it's got the Oktoberfest in there. Rarely was one disappointed with Saranac's It's true. Very true. At least on this podcast. Yeah. Wink, wink. Exactly. <laughs> Send us that Darktoberfest. <laughs> All right, guys. So uh, we're going to talk about In the Mouth of Madness and get right into it. What a great uh, title, by the way. Yeah, so the title is derived from um, the Lovecraft story at the Mountains of Madness, which um, is sort of your first lead-in, I guess, to what this film is going to be about. Um, and a lot of the Sutter Kane stories that we hear about throughout the film are based on Lovecraftian tales. Uh, and a lot of times, Carpenter takes the, the stories and he really manipulates the titles, but they're very, very similar to the original Lovecraft titles. So you were saying before that you really haven't followed Lovecraft, but for those I who, just know Cthulhu is a thing. Right, and we do see that a little bit. Like, you see that on some of the book covers and stuff, that there's, like, this tentacle-like creature, which would be considered the Elder Gods, and they call them the Old Ones yeah. in this film. Um, and that would be that's like his main mythos. But Wait, that, made this, me, that made me think of DC. First, there were the old gods. True, and, true. I mean, most of that do, does come in some way from Lovecraft. Um, but Lovecraft, he really had this mythos of the Cthulhu mythos, the cycle of the elder gods. But then he also did other stories that really weren't related in much in many ways to the elder gods. But what they did talk about was that idea of um, like arcane knowledge that you really shouldn't have or the search for knowledge that when you get right down to it you at the end you wish you didn't actually know that stuff um so it's really about like us as scientists trying to figure out like the the purposes of the world what our lives should be uh why we're alive and at the end of the day let's say if you think of in biblical terms god telling adam like stay away from that goddamn apple exactly You you don't you know yeah, it's that search for hidden knowledge, and you know, once you find it, you you figure out that human minds weren't supposed to know it. There's a reason why we don't know that information because we can't handle it. What do you do with it at that point? Now you're irrevocably changed, and you are sort of like this alternate human being from every everybody else. And so, in a lot of ways, I think that's what. John Carpenter really set out to do within the mountains in the mouth of Manus because the whole story really does revolve around the idea that reality is what we make it. And at a certain point, the main character, Trent, John Trent, um, really doesn't know what reality is anymore. Played by Sam Neill. Yeah. The, incom- the incomparable Sam Neill. Hot off of Jurassic Park, Sam Neill. 
who is probably not at the top of his game in in the mouth mouth of madness, Sam Neill. To be, to be fair, I've never been one to think that Sam Neill was is a great actor. I will agree with you in that I think that he doesn't have much range in the things that I've seen him he's in. Pretty, he's pretty a wooden. Um, I'm trying to think what the hell is the follow up to. Mm. 70s horror film starring Gregory Peck. The Omen? Yes. Okay. He stars in that as Damien, uh, the sequel to that, I think, right. from the mid-80s as Damien. Yeah. I just think that he doesn't have a whole lot of range, and that kind of shows in, in The Mouth of Madness. Like, he does, in some ways, need to be sort of a... um, A layman? A very... He's a layman, but he also needs to be emotional, because yeah. he has to show a lot of uh, different emotions. He has to show, like, sarcasm. He has to show um, disbelief. Uh, and then towards the end, insanity. And he's really not good. A lot of those things tend to boil down into like a cheesy sort of uh, acting from him. Where he's really hamming it up instead of actually portraying those emotions. In a, I, in a... I, I think that's part of the direction, though. It's possible. Because, I mean, yeah. if if we know anything from a film that came out around the same time, too, The Mangler... Or any new line film of you know the early nineties, sure. mid nineties. Yeah. Um, you know the acting's always kind of suspect, and I think that's kind of if, like you said, it's kind of like more of a, peer, a thing of the period, kind of like what they're sort, going for for the like time. An exaggerated element yeah. to it, rather than actual realism to it. Because you know, as we said with the Mangler, like Toby Hooper is not a bad director. He had some great films. Ted, Eli, say, the Ma- Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Ted Levine was is not a bad actor for all intents and purposes, but in that film, he's batshit crazy. So it's kind of and the same thing with John Carpenter. Like, you know, I mean, he, you know, for, through his films, you got like eight different versions of Kurt Russell. You, you know, got to see Kurt Russell. True. You know, yeah. Kurt Russell's range. So I think it's, I think it. You know, though I don't I I don't think Sam Neill's particularly that great of an actor i think what he does here is fine i think because like i said it kind of fits the time period of like kind of how especially in horror films how kind of people acted before you know the renaissance of slasher films yeah i mean sam neill here he has to portray this layman character john trent who is a really i mean for all intents and purposes should be a very boring guy he's a in a uh insurance fraud investigator in my opinion, <laughs> one of the dull experience that must be for most people a really dull job. Top five, yeah, of just going around like, can I see your books? And just looking through the books. And they're trying. Well, they're trying to make it. Um, they're trying to make him interesting because as we like the one time when he's like breaking down that one guy and like how he's saying like his case is bullshit. You like it's like, oh, I thought this is supposed to be a horror film. Hold on, now when we stepped into a 1940s noir now. Yeah, the, uh, this film in particular does derive a lot of its uh, noir-like aspects, the detective work, from a Clive Barker film previously, Nightbreed, which has uh, Harry Damore in it, and that's Clive Barker's character of, like, a private eye detective, like a private dick. And um, (laughs) this film, in some ways, with uh, Sam Neill's character, really resembles that in terms of, like, the noirish characteristics, the... The guy who's, like, interviewing people. But this guy is an insurance fraud investigator. He's, like, there's no reason why he's interviewing this guy like a cop who's trying to get down to the bottom of, like, some heinous murder. He's freelance. Exactly. Like, I guess he can do whatever he wants, but at the same time, 
you know, he's not that intimidating, but at the beginning of the film, we see this guy sweating bullets because he's like, this guy's on to me. He knows I said this arson. You know, it's like, this guy's an insurance fraud investigator. He's not super intimidating. It really did make me think of, like, the last chapter in L.A. Noir when you have to play as that... The dickbag, uh... Yeah, insurance. Insurance yeah. fraud guy. Yeah, the, uh, which... Off topic, but that part that part of the game pissed me off because I never thought he was, like, a likable... He's a piece <laughs> of shit. Like, though Cole had his faults, you know... Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't a bad person. This guy's just like a pissy, like, oh, you know, like, I want to be you. did bad things. I can't remember his name because he's such a whiny piece of shit, but. I do think it's interesting, though, with, like, the insurance fraud thing. That, what uh, a, I say, but in which, by the way, what a, just like, like, wow. It's a weird yeah. element to this film because if you think about it, this is, like, great lengths for an insurance fraud investigator to, like, travel to this place investigate Sutter Kane's novels read like all of them mm-hmm. literally all of them in one sitting and do some detective work I don't understand why John Carpenter just didn't like, make him in a detective see that's why Sutter Kane's better than Stephen King they're light reads compared you know that's true you, you know true. it is a light read you're not mapping out an entire you know fortnight to like alright so I'm gonna hit it you know yeah um. I, but I don't understand why he didn't just make him a detective because for all intents and purposes that's what he is because he's he's detecting where Sutter Kane is. I think it's because it'd be too stereotypical. So. I guess, yeah, maybe. And I mean, it's an interesting way to get to the whole point of like kind of how Sam Neill's character, uh, John Trent's, very much like what he can see and experience is reality, and you know, and how by being an insurance fraud agent. And seeing all these different cons and whatnot, he knows how to cut through the bullshit. You know, when he when he's telling that one guy that um he was like kind of uh, had as like an apprentice when he was interviewing that one that first uh, guy about the fraud. You know, and he, the guy was like, "Man, you're, you're that's so awesome how you handled that." And you know, that's great. And he's like, "Oh no, you want to deal with the pros? That's when it gets interesting." These like small time guys, they don't know what they're doing, so you can hand, you know cut through the bullshit right away and figure out you know what's rational. But it's the pros you want to watch. And so when this whole world, his whole reality gets turned upside down, you know, that's... Yeah, I, I mean, I think it thematically it makes sense. I think it could have just as easily worked with the detective. But it's just funny how they went with the insurance fraud investigator approach to it. Um, well, if you made it, him a detective, then you're just ripping off the wicker man. It's true. I mean, there is a lot of other detective sort of noirish elements to other films. So maybe he wanted to avoid that sort of... But it's it's only there for the first fifteen minutes, and then once yeah. they're kind of off and running, that that whole like noir aspects drop. That's why it's kind of like yeah, it's oh, kind of weird. Well, it's funny too because at the beginning, you uh, once uh, Trent uh, meets up with uh, Linda Stiles, who is supposed to be his the uh, PR editor uh, for this uh, publishing publishing company, company who's at- attending uh, wherever uh, Trent is going because he's she's supposed to be like following him. Uh, and we uh, we find out that it really this whole Sutter Kane thing is supposed to be a PR stunt that's really truly oh, right. gone wrong. Um, he leans up to Linda Stiles by an elevator, like very like intimidatingly, almost like trying to woo her in some way. Like if you don't, and, and like hey, like if you say it's kind of it's very Dennis Reynoldsy like, like you can't say no to dinner with me and looking over these files. Because of the implications. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's int- yeah because like that's a very noirish thing to do. Like especially a forties noir of like a man who's imposing himself, thinking like a woman should be attracted to him. 
Like, yeah. why aren't... Like, yeah. like, if she said no, just slap her. Like, come on, you know, you you, you want to go to dinner with me. Okay, fine. See, she likes me. Yep. Yeah, no, I'm afraid you might beat me. No, she like, you know, she And I, I think the other thing, too, is the consistent use of Sam Neill's smoking cigarettes in, like, a very sultry manner of him, like, taking the cigarette box, flipping it up a little bit, putting it to his mouth, doesn't like, it in make the corner. You, doesn't it make you want to smoke? It does, yeah, because... And that's that was, like, a big thing... That, you know, some of those groups that are trying to get smoking out of movies. I know. Because it is very Allure. attractive yeah. and alluring. It's like, wow, look at that cool guy. Yeah, like, when you see... The cigarette well, what, and... we, I say, we, we talked about it before on the podcast when it comes to that. Like, when you see Sean Connery getting introduced in Dr. No for the first time, when he says Bond, James Bond yeah. for the first time, he's pulling out a beautiful, like, porcelain, like, cigarette case and, like, you know, putting it in his it, mouth. Sw- it's great. I, I gotta admit, it's alluring, especially, like, Sam Neill, he looks good smoking a cigarette, I gotta say. However, he does I look can, like, like a guy that wouldn't smoke, though. He does, yeah. Because the way when the way he kind of holds it to and kind of like the way he they always cut away, so I, I don't think he was actually smoking. Yeah, he didn't really smoke at all, actually. Like, every time they showed yeah. him, he had to put it out. Yeah. So, um, but one thing that I do think, too, is that, like, like, probably smoking companies are sitting there, like, taking notes of, like, people who are smoking and be like, what's the best way they look when they're smoking? Because if you think about some other people, like, regular people who we'll smoke, see, it doesn't actually look that attractive. Well, see, that's what, I yeah, know. Well, they, you, most people, like, I see at work, they're, just, like, like, puffing. Yeah, two, like, in two minutes, it's like, yeah. wow, you spent $10 on that pack. Yep. You get 20 of them, you burn through that one cigarette but in two minutes. In the yeah. movies. The, oh, look, nice, long, damn cool. Yeah. You look damn cool. Cruising why, around in a car with well, it. Well, that's why you got to watch Thank You for Smoking. Exactly. Have you seen that movie? I have not. Oh, my God. I just, I think that a lot of the smoking companies were, like, taking notes and then putting it in and, like, no, they probably I, were standing no, there they were, seeing No, they weren't taking like, notes. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. See, that's the thing. They weren't taking notes. They were telling them, this is how you film it to make it look, yeah. get the people, have Fred Flintstone be like, hey, you know, you know what I like to do after a long day at the rock quarry? Have a nice Winston. But uh, the, those noir qualities really do come out here. I think, yeah, you're right. More so in the beginning of the film uh, than than towards well, as we get further into it. But uh, interesting element to it that I, I I liked actually. It really sucks you in at the beginning of the it could film. Be interesting to see John Carpenter do, do a noir, more of a noir film. Um, which I, I is, think this which, is probably like as close as we're gonna get. Well, obviously, yeah. Yeah, it's a dead genre, kind of like how westerns are basically been dead. I think. I, I, I mean, I think, like I said, uh, if you want to see something close to that that it's not John Carpenter, it would be Nightbreed. Because that really does have the noir qualities from Clyde Barker of uh, kind of like what this does and even goes a little bit further to it because it's really about a detective discovering this cabal of <laughs> you were just no, no, using no. I'm such. The, I'm no. using that word because that's the original name of the story. So cabal is uh, the is the name. No, of the but story. no, I, I know what the word. I know, I know, I know, I know what know. the word means. But you put out a, a torrent of like of just sprinkling in like all these words. Like just, I guess so. Yeah, it's great. I love. This is a collegiate level podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, <laughs> um, USAT vocab must be. That's right. Yeah, but no, I, it's it's it's. I love but, it. Every time, every time you be <laughs> about a word like that, it's... Yeah. well. So the uh, the other thing that I think is is really interesting about in the mouth of madness, besides the whole uh, noirish aspect, is that it really does get right a lot of the Lovecraftian elements, and I think where it really hits its stride after the whole beginning part and really setting up like the whole Sutter Kane aspect is when it gets to Hobbs uh, Hobbs End, Hobbs End, which is part of the story. Where uh, Sam Neill's character really figures out that it's an actual location 
and New Hampshire by cutting apart all of Sarder Kane's book covers randomly, pretty no, much. No, 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 Each book cover has, like, a red outline. Oh, does it really? Yeah, each, each. Oh, okay. Yeah, each, I, I each, guess each, I, each. I noticed the one on Hobbs, on the Hobbs End cover, but I didn't really no, notice the other all, ones. Yeah, no, all of them had, like, like some kind of outline, and he cut them out, and, gotcha. you, and you piece them together. I was thinking he was just, like, in a fit of madness, just, like, cutting, 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 and he's, he comes up with the New Hampshire outline, and as a, as somebody else, I'd be like, you're what the fuck? Well, that would kill me. Yeah, I, I, because I, I would, well, I can't do that. Like, when I see people who like would buy like textbooks for college and like highlight shit and write notes in the book, it's like can't oh. cut them apart. It's like no, you, it actually that's did what, hurt me a little bit. It's like to that's see what, him cutting off all the covers because they're I, so I, beautiful. I, and you know ornate. what? Some of those old books, like Stephen King books, like that, I do have those books that are missing covers, and it hurts. <laughs> it hurts me physically. That they are missing the covers, so seeing him cut them off intentionally. Yeah, I will say rough. too that the a, the agent that was coming to ki- kill Sam Neill when there, he was talking to his uh, friend partner, yeah, accomplice with the where, axe, uh, yeah, as you see it. That was thinking like, are we going like a Dawn of the Dead route? Like, like the way he kind of looked and was like moving, sort like, of like a zombie. Yes, yeah, very zombie. Yeah, the, the like, film does have a lot of zombie like elements to it, especially like with the the kids and and stuff with the the makeup. The well, like I say, I was saying like a lot. It does borrow kind of a lot from a different. That's why it's kind of, like this for I would say for compared to most John Carpenter films. There's a lot of much more borrowing from like other like kind of films and genres that like you wouldn't see kind of you know compared to like his other films like obviously the thing he's borrowing from the thing from another world because it's a remake but you know he's doing his own thing same thing with Halloween like yeah there's some like Black Christmas elements in there and whatnot but it's it becomes its own thing this one has a lot of and as i described to you like just from like the way it's directed it feels like a very italian jallo film like in how everything's like how it's paced the editing that they use how they cut the things the elaborate colors and kind of like setup it's like an italian film yeah the um i would say that the uh, the pacing is one of those big things that's like italian uh, because it is on a slower end of, of pacing. And it's only 95 lot, minutes. A lot of dialogue. Um, Exposition for, like, you know, things that are going on. And the other, like, you mentioned the color. And uh, one of the other things, too, is just the uh, the whole um, creature-ness to it. Like, all of those crazy, like, flashes and creatures and stuff. is very reminiscent of some of, like, the 80s Italian films that would have, you know, creatures in the background that... Um, where like f- special effects work, it reminds me so- somewhat of like Shocking Dark and things that Italian films would do. Um, well, I was thinking too with like the whole, um, not even like because like I say, I would say this is like a pretty good mashup of American style horror with like the Lovecraftian like um, creature style like horror, but then also like like I said, the way it's directed and the tone of it makes it feel like an Italian film because like when you have him like. Um, having those flashbacks like the axe and the blood splattering and all that—it's it, to me—it's like it's like that's like very much like an Argento film. Yeah, the way like you know like it made me think of like Tenebrae, the way like how that like kind of—it's also um very symmetrical too. A lot of times it's pretty symmetrical. The whole asylum and how that kind of looked in the beginning is that like to me made me think of kind of like um not just Italian like like an Argento film, but also at the same time kind of like The Shining because Kubrick is always yep. big on symmetry. And um, kind of, I don't know why, but Manhunter too. Well, oh yeah, Manhunter for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things in this film too is that we've t- we talked about a little bit Sam Neill looking like uh, this was off the podcast, but Sam Neill looking a little bit like 
uh, Bruce, Bruce Campbell in this film, but he also looks like Jack Nicholson a little bit in this film too. And I, I don't know if that was intentional, but it certainly has a lot of the elements of The Shining, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up because you have the whole axe element, um, the whole I mean, I Sam Neill basically as a main character going crazy, uh, and I think that it has a lot of that element of The Shining too. Um, and I did notice a, a little bit of a Jack Nicholson comparison there, especially when Sam Neill is kind of going in his theatrics. Yeah, um, like when, when, uh, there's a good shot of him that reminds me of like the shiny kind of when he's in the asylum. He kind of look the way he's like kind of looking down, and he like kind of coyly like lifts his head up, and the way he smiles, kind of like very like the way you would say like, that's how Jack Nicholson would like do that kind of like like you know like yeah. Um, um, what do you? So I think that one of the uh, interesting elements here is the aspect of reality, and that a lot of times our reality as a viewer. And we're supposed to be really seeing this through Sam Neill's as a character. Our reality is kind of um, predicated on whether we actually believe that all these things that are happening to Sam Neill are really actually happening. Or if he is in some way just experiencing a mass madness that has occurred because of reading Sutter Kane. Um, what do you think about the, the whole aspect of this reality that we're presented with in the film? Is everything really happening as we see it? Or is there some sort of it attempt to make it so that Trent as a character is what we're supposed to be experiencing as a form of madness. That's not really happening. So I think you put it well right there. I think if you're looking at it on the basic level, it's you can take it for what it's worth that, uh, that um, he's going mad, but it's because of the Sutter Kane novel that's actually connected to the old gods, and that's what, you know, is driving everybody mad, and that's what's happening. You can take it basically at the basic level, but I think it, the film does become more interesting when you look at it, like, maybe everything that's going on that's been happening, and like, and how the, the, the film ends on this apocalyptic level, like, is it all just in his head? Is, you know, um... It's like, is he just experiencing his own hallucinations and delusions? Right. That's what makes that, like, inter- I, it makes it interesting is the, how it handles that. So, like, in the film is very, is vague into which, obviously it's leaning more towards the whole, very basic, like, it's a, you know, Sutter Kane, like, joins with the old gods, and he becomes, you know, a type of god and deity, and he's, you know, controlling and manipulating things, and it's all real, but, like I said, it's vague enough to where, like, if you're sitting there, you could think and come away with, oh, maybe it is all, this is all in his head. And I, I think part of it, too, is, is the other aspect of it that we see is that a lot of what we see is from, um, Trent's perspective, and even if we're not seeing it from Trent's perspective, like half of the movie or, or a good portion of the movie does take place with just St- Linda Stiles as she's driving the car. We could also presume that that's just part of Trent's dreaming or his, you know, his lucid state. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that really stands out is towards the end of the film, when Trent is in this uh, cell and he's telling his story to a guy who's come to investigate because he's, he's realized that there's a lot of mass madness in the world at this time. And he's trying to link these things together. Um, he never really tells Trent, like, yeah, you're, you know, that's exactly what's happening. It's more, it's left up to, like... Well, because you could, you could formulate that he's kind of playing along. Yeah, he's exactly. trying 
because he's trying to get him to tell like what's going on. So he's trying to de- delve deeper into Trent's mind. Because if he goes out, there's like, no, there's no mass madness going on yeah. out there. Then it's going to shut Trent down, so he's not going to get to hear what he's got to say and right. what he wants to learn from. It, it's almost like a Loomis style, like, yeah. working with the patient. Yeah. Rather than, you know, just saying, like, no, that's not happening, yeah. you're crazy. He lets him go along with his delusion. Well, that's how, you know, psychotherapy, like, yep. you know, like, whether the psych- psychiatrist, you know, believes what you're telling or not, you know, it's, you know, it's more a ploy to get you to open up and, like, like oh, you saw that? Go on. Like, you, like, you know, you saw that unicorn today? What did it look, you know, go on. Tell me, you know, tell me about it, you One know? thing that I also found really interesting, and you brought up this point, is that uh, Sam Neill never really gets to smoke. And part of that does stem from Sam Neill never really having agency. So he always tries to smoke and people tell him not to. And the whole film really is about having agency. Do you have agency over what you do? Or does something else have agency over what you do? As in a uh, all-knowing God, as in Sutter Kane, who basically becomes a God, uh, as in a, uh, an illness, a mental illness that causes you to lose your own agency mm-hmm. in the act of performing whatever it is that your mind tells you to do. Um, I think that's really interesting and telling as well. I don't think that In the Mouth of Madness really gives us a definitive answer. I think you can see it both ways and really not have a wrong opinion on it. I think John Carpenter left it fairly uh, simplistic at the end in that it's the apocalypse is actually happening just so that it had some sort of resolution to it. Um, But I think you can see it both ways equally without really needing to change your mind on certain things that happen in the film that that much because whatever we see you can always just chalk up to part of that is just our pov from trent who's having this delusion because we do see multiple times that he has a delusion inside of a delusion Mm -hmm. inside of a delusion so you know it all could be happening or it could all just be in uh, multiple delusions within trent's mind and that's what again makes it interesting as we as we've said a thousand times in the podcast less is always going to be better than more you know this film i'm sure was a radar yeah there's no gore in this, like, you know. Not for, really, no. For, like, no. the the body count that's in this film, there's not, they always cut away. So, did that person die? Right. Is that, so, and that's an interesting thing. Like, was that intentional? Did they cut away from it because it's, you know, supposed to be, like, it's in his mind, so he's, like, thinking it? Or is it because, like, budgetary constraints or something? Or is it a mixture of both? Mm-hmm. That's what make you know, again, that's what makes it interesting. And I think this film does have a lot of interesting points. I think some of them, though, are kind of flawed in how they handle it. Um, one of them being the whole idea of like Stutter Kane's books. There are just pe- some people just latch onto them and like you know lose their sense of perception. As I said before on the podcast, like you're the reader, you're the one that reads Stephen King novels and stuff. Have you ever walked away from reading a novel and be like, I'm terrified or I'm ch- chilled to the bone like that? You know? I, I haven't. No, I mean, I guess maybe the only thing that you could really say is that. You can have a bad dream every now and then. Like, I know, but even even still, especially now, like maybe more so before the invention of film, where it's like, okay, that could easily seep in, because that's, that's all you know, like kind of have to have a story told to you, is through either the written or spoken word. Mm-hmm. But once like you've seen like a film, and it's literally visual, mm-hmm. where you can manipulate and make things look as real as possible... The, don't books kind of... Uh, I agree. It, it, I, it's, mean, it, I think that books are tough. The only thing that you can really... I think more so than just literally having a monster in a book, 
The scarier thing about have, when you read a novel or a book is thinking that this can actually happen or some version of it. So thinking about, I think, uh, what would be what is scarier than having, like in this film, Elder Gods or something like that, is that you have a knowledge of something that you can't get over. And that doesn't necessarily mean like literally like knowledge about the how the world was made that you can't get over. But let's say you have knowledge about your wife that you can't you just literally cannot get over that ruins your like relationship with your wife like she that's, she, like, like so, oh, so for instance that'd be like she cheated exactly. on you but you don't you or, can't you can't like yeah cut, you can't come to her and like exactly t- and, like, you, t- and talk about so it's like there's, there's something that's like just like you know about it and like it's just eating you in, up in a ment- lot. and yeah. mentally you're constantly lingering on it that that's scary um That'd be like, How that, about that, like you find out something horrifying about your parents that you that your parents have been great people you always known them to be super nice super happy and then all of a sudden one day you find out something horrifying that changes your perception of your parents forever as a very that's a very different style of terror that works well within books because it does eat at your sense of reality you think about it exactly but again like something like the old gods like they're written in like right. I like that, that stuff doesn't really scare in the way that like when you're reading or it, like, you're not terrified or like Pennywise, right? Pe- like that's like a much more interesting and horrifying concept in the visual medium than the written. There's not enough verbose words that you could use that'd be like, oh, yeah. that's you know, that's ooh. And even then, we've actually really gotten to the point where movies don't even really do it justice well, no. to scare well, you. Like, well, it's like I, said, I was going to say that, too. Like, something like, again, Night of the Living Dead, when that came out, it's terrifying. These people just lingering about eating. People who watch that now who've seen other horror films, like, what the fuck's scary about this film? Right. And, and that and that continually occurs to the point where you become like me and you come pr- pretty yeah. much desensitized to most scares in movies. It's That's not something that can really get you anymore. You have to be more immersed. So... What I would say that is more immersive now is probably video games. Video games scares are a little bit more immersive because sometimes you tend to transport yourself as a POV into that game and you're a bit more in immersed in that. And because it relies on user input, you have to be exactly. more focused. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You're focused on it. So it's bit, it's scarier. And and I do get you know nervous within video games. Um, and I think even going past that is going to be VR. VR is probably going to be the closest that you can get to being legitimately terrified, even though you know that it's fake. When you're in VR, it really feels real. And so there is still that sense that you're terrified. Well, I think for film, I think a lot of filmmakers have realized it's not gore that's the terrifying Yes. Thing. It's more the situ- situation scenario. So like today... What's been like, kind of like the scarier films that like people have been like walking it, away from? Like that's the, good. The like, situational ones, like Quiet Place. Sure, they like or that's what it's called, right? Yeah, a Quiet, quiet place. place. Yeah, yeah with that one or It Follows. Like it, you know, it would so- be probably the one that I would say would the most effective would be Hereditary, uh, one that lies itself in real world concepts of, again, like I said, experiencing something that you can't move past. You legitimately like it was something so horrific that you cannot move past it. And you're stuck just constantly thinking about it. That's, I would say that's probably the one that comes closest to being actually terrifying. And it's not, it's not terrifying in the sense that like you're scared of it. It's more like you dread it. It's a dread that you, you like hope that never happens to you. And so I think that's, it's, it's a little bit different. And so in some ways in the mouth of Manus really brings that up because it is about the dread of not 
being able to have your own agency of at some point in your life experiencing this moment where you're like, I'm not really sure what is real anymore. I don't, I don't, you know, am I actually experiencing something or is it something in my head that I'm experiencing? And I would say that the closest that you can come to this is like, and I'm not an expert in this obviously, but having like a bad trip when you're high, because when you're high and that, and you get that like that, in some ways, you know that you're high and you can tell yourself, Hey, I'm high. But in the other sense, you, there's some ways where you cannot limit the, where you're going in your head. And so I've had a bad trip like that, where you get paranoid, you get delusional. Um, and you, uh, you, you are in this state where you're like, I don't like where this is going, but you can't, you're helpless to stop it. And I think that's where in the mouth of madness goes is that it's, it's like, you're questioning what reality is and you have no control over what it is. It's not totally explicit in the film, but I, I, it is a point that's brought up because, as we said, being the insurance fraud guy, Sam Neill's very focused on, again, what's real, what's not real. Concrete what's, facts. Yeah, what, yeah, you know, rational, being rational. He's, you know, very much kind of like a Spock character. He, like, he only, you know, believes what he can see and rationalize. And when, like, all these crazy things are happening around him, the first thing he's trying to do is rationalize. Like, this isn't real. Why is this happening? Yeah. This is just an elaborate scheme. He's trying to, you know, think about it. I think the only flaw with it is, like, it's the film's not long enough to kind of expound upon it. It's very much go, go, go. Yeah, once it reaches Hobbs End and uh, once uh, he experiences Linda really becoming this weird tentacle creature that's really an elder god at that point it really rushes forward it just keeps going and it really doesn't settle down at that point you're like in an alternate reality where it constantly is morphing and some i could see where some people wouldn't like that because some people don't like to not be grounded in a reality where you can actually tell what's going on um and in some ways i understand that because but again, it, make, it makes sense for this film. The it whole, makes sense for this film, whole, but the, sometimes when it in those films, it feels like a cop out in that like you just feel like they didn't have an ending, so they came up with something that just was bending reality and bending the the audience's mind. But I don't think that's that, the case. Well, it's not it. the case here because that's all halfway through the film when you find out that yeah. Sutter Kane's been manipulating the whole thing by writing it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, an interesting element, and it comes very out, meta too. Yeah, it's very meta, um, especially towards the end of the film when you see the film itself replaying for Sam Neill's character. Um, definitely a meta thing. I want to talk about this a little bit before we go into like some of the other elements uh, that I just want to bring up is that in the mouth of madness really occurs in between two important elements of John Carpenter's filmmaking. So. In 1988, John Carpenter did Prince of Darkness. Uh, not long after that, he did They Live. And then after that, he did um, In the Mouth of Madness. So, um, actually, Prince of Darkness was 87. Uh, so, when in that time frame, we definitely see a shift in John Carpenter's output. Uh, in the Mouth of Madness is very similar to Prince of Darkness in a lot of ways. Prince of Darkness is about an apocalypse. It's about a um, a uh, like a virus that's been opened up that has caused mass madness. Their posters are both very similar. Their posters are very similar. <laughs> it's almost as if they're in the same like you know mythos, the same cycle. 
Um, Actually, apparently, from what I read online, apparently this is what he calls the Apocalypse Trilogy. Right. The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and then... And they have, I mean, they have a which lot of I've ne- Which elements. I have never heard of that before. I would say that, you know, and I think that's a stretch because I think, like, the th- when you compare The Thing and In the Mouth of Madness, there, uh, it's so opposite spectrums that the only thing is the paranoia aspect and the apocalypse theme. and the apocalyptic element to it but i think other than that like s- comparing them is like apples and oranges they're really not similar at all but prince of darkness in in the mouth of madness is very similar and then from there too we have not long after in the mouth of madness uh though it was kind of forced upon him village of the damned which really re uh it goes back to the elements of in the mouth of madness that come out like children, uh, creepy children that were used. Um, this fits really well in that category. And I would say that this is probably John Carpenter's, uh, last best work. The, the one that is, you know, part of his best works before he kind of stop giving a damn. Well, not just (laughs) stop giving a damn, but, was kind of forced into it by pro- certain production companies, things like that. I know, but that's why he always was more of an independent filmmaker, stayed, and stayed away from Hollywood. It was the thing that yeah. drove him away from it's, Hollywood, it's, just you from know, how tedious... I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the thing that drove him away from bigger Hollywood productions. Well, I mean, he still got into it here, but... I, well, I, I'll say that and, you know, Escape from L.A. is like, you know... I just wanted to bring up that the similarities between this and Prince of Darkness is, is very apparent. Um... Even to the point of like the atmospherics of it and the church settings and the the um just the whole moody setup is very similar to Prince of Darkness. So if you like In the Mouth of Madness, definitely check out Prince of Darkness. Um, I would say Prince of Darkness is one of my favorite films. It definitely has one of my favorite scores. Um, so check it out. But uh, yeah, very similar. And uh, I think you know it's this one is very interesting taking a lot from Stephen King and Lovecraft and making something unique out of it, I would say. Something that you don't really see that often. What do you think Stephen King thought about the whole... Sutter Kane element? Yeah. Well, you know what? This is um, As I was definitely say, within Stephen King's wheelhouse and something he's written about in the past. I was going to say, to be honest with you, I think the kind of homage King too, the one farm guy that ended up shooting himself in the bar, reminded me a lot of Stephen King and Creep Show because yeah, I feel like an older, yeah. like an older version. Like, yeah. like oh, that's crap. <laughs> I, I think that Stephen King would definitely see uh, a lot of similarities to some, some things that he wrote, like uh, Typewriter of the Gods. Um, wherein the author has the ability to write whatever, and and then it happens. Um, there is certainly a lot of aspects like that, and also I think that he would see what John Carpenter was saying too about Sutter Kane being sort of a godlike figure. Is that you do in some ways as a writer, as a popular bestseller, have the an opportunity to manipulate your your readers in certain ways, and I. But I think that this is where I kind of have a problem with the film. The fact that they use a novelist, a horror novelist specifically, to, like, get that message across. I, I, Because I, I, to me, I find it more... I know there are people who become obsessive and, you know, follow it kind of like, like as a cult. Kind of like how people get really into, you know, the Harry Potter books and just go ape shit over them. Yeah. Like, um, but I mean, to me, I find, I find it harder though for like novels, especially horror novels. Like I know Stephen King has a huge following, but 
It's not like you hear people like, well, someone, you know, was murdered today because they read it in a Stephen King novel, you know. I don't know. I th- I, I do see the power of the written word, so I, I'm not going to discount that. Well, you are a writer, so. Yeah. But I also do see that I think this was like what John Carpenter was saying as the first form. That you get everybody that you can who reads the book, but then you also make the movie. Because at the end of the film, you, I know, have, that, you know, what, they yeah. have the whole great well, line yeah, of like, we... what happens when people don't read. Well, you have the movie. I think that was a kind of a a nod too to like. But that's not Stephen King's fault, though. No, I'm not saying it's his fault. But I'm no, but no, that... no, it's not. Well, I guess I guess. Well, who would that go to? Who would have to get the approval? Whoever owns the rights to the story, which in his case, who is it? Is it him? Or well, yeah, he would probably sell the rights. Um, but what I was actually getting at is that, like, I think that was just John Carpenter's nod of saying, like. You know, well, what happens when books aren't really, and books are kind of becoming obsolete at that time in the 90s. What happens, you know, when you don't have a book that can really influence people while you have a movie? And I think that was really... And he should know, he did, like a, he did a Stephen King movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that was like a meta, <laughs> another meta inclusion in there of making movies and influencing people within the realism of it as i told you as i told you i were watching I'm like well during the you know that time period the topical thing would have been to do video games yeah because how you know like that goddamn mortal Kombat, you know ripping people's hearts out people people are gonna been eating that shit up and they're gonna copy it yeah but i could just see john carpenter like yeah it's stupid that you know it's just being a curmudgeon about it no, i mean i get it like, it's an interesting idea but like again especially today like I, I think more. I think if you're gonna go with a book, more the genre would like have to be like kind of like a. I'd say like maybe, like a. Like murder mystery, or somebody who writes kind of more like uh. Kind of like those stupid ass like uh, Bill O'Reilly, killing Kennedy, killing Reagan, you know, type books, mm-hmm. type of things where people could like. It's more grounded in, like, a reality itself compared to... Because, you know, I mean, granted, this film's based on the whole supernatural aspect, too, you know. So you kind of have to have, like, Lovecraftian elements to get you to the whole, like, all this crazy shit happening, and is it real or not? But I think if it was, if you were to do, like, a real-world scenario, it'd be more, like, kind of, like murder mysteries or you know or somebody TV would or something yeah well, well not t- not exactly tv but like i said if you d- were to do an author like somebody who's an author it'd be somebody who like james patterson novels like like oh you know this murder mystery is going on somebody's do it like kind of like suddenly influence them to, yeah. to murder like in tenebrae mm-hmm. yeah you know that's you know i mean that's just kind of like a nitpick for me though i'm not yeah. saying it's a big problem but i think i you know um we didn't talk about the special effects yet which was done by uh, K&B and um, most of the makeup effects and stuff were done by K&B. Uh, what did you think about the uh, special effects in this film? Not bad, but there's not that much. I, they're, they're very limited. The only one that's bad is that one CGI they used at the end to show like uh, Sutter Kane ripping himself like out of reality. and you know. I actually found that the K&B effects in this film were probably not their best. They definitely don't look as good as The Thing, which would have been released, you know... Ten years ago. Ten years prior to this. Um, And and part of that may be because we watched the Scream Factory Blu-ray. This is a 4K transfer. Obviously, it's been scaled down for 1080p for the the Blu-ray. But um, I I wonder if that does a sort of a disservice to the actual 
affects itself. It's clarifying the picture for sure, but it's also clarifying sort of the muddled intention behind the special effects that you don't really get to see all of the detail of it. Well, but like, you know, but, I mean, I, I can't, looks... like I say, like, I can't really complain because like for the most part, like I said, there's not a lot going on. Like there isn't, but one thing that really stands out to me as a uh, sort of that doesn't look very good at all, at least now is when Linda Stiles is doing her little exorcist shuffle with oh, her head flipped her, back. Yeah, when her, she's her, her spider walk. Yeah. That looks fairly bad because it looks like a doll mask set on a face of a person. It looks I, that one for sure stood out to me as one of the worst yeah, no. elements of this film. Um, but I think all of it really, if you're thinking, you know, even like when Sutter Kane, when the camera spins around Sutter Kane and he's got the little, uh, I don't know what it is, you know, like demon that's crawling out of the backside of his head. That looked cool. I think it looks cool, but it, it's still, I think it also is a disservice that John Carpenter directed the thing and none of this reaches the thing levels of special effects. Could that be? Budgetary though, it, yeah, I'm it, sure it's completely this, possible. I'm sure this film was not given anywhere, right? Because again, the thing was, I mean, I know this is a new, well, it's a new line, so it's always going to be on the cheap. But I mean, compared to the thing, he had a much better budget comparatively than yeah. you know here. So, um, you know, I like I said, I don't, I, I, I didn't say anything was great because it's not, but it's definitely not anything. You know, especially, especially again, I hate to use the comparison, but compared to the Mangler, which came out around the same time too. Effects in this are a billion times better true. than that. You know that is true. You know, so there's no complaint. And I would say compared to a lot of film horror films at the time, this has pretty decent, you know, effects. Yeah. How about the acting? Uh, we've already talked a little bit about Sam Neill, and he's basically the whole fucking show. He is. <laughs> uh, but I would say that Julie Carmen uh, as Linda Stiles is a big part of this too. She's just as wooden, if not more. I, I definitely found her to be a uh, downfall in this. Did film you not find acting. her seductive when we were first introduced her? with she, the sucking on the glasses? Takes her glasses off and gives it. I think cork. that was a goof at one point, though. Didn't it show her like putting the glasses away and then all of a sudden they're back out in her mouth? Yeah, I feel like that was a. Yeah, a mix-up, uh, but uh, just how you want your editor of your, you know, uh, for the publisher to be introduced, like, hi, you pantsuit know. and sucking on glasses. Yeah, no wonder right. why Sam Neill tried to, you know, force her into dinner. He yeah. was getting mixed signals. There. I, I didn't know what to do. I gotta say though that yeah, Julie Carmen in this film really not great. She has some really bad line deliveries, that's for sure. Especially towards like the middle of the film when she's starting to go crazy. Um, I can't remember exactly what she says, but she's like, I'm not myself. I'm not yeah. myself. You know, no, I'm not me. I'm not me. Yeah, she and said, yeah she's like, I'm not a, me. Very terrible line delivery from that one. But, uh, I did love when she punches Sam Neill and he just oh, fucking he just, yeah. full on decks her right back. Like, no, you know, <laughs> yeah. no shit's given. There was like no hesitation or yeah. anything. He just takes the punch, <laughs> punches her right back, and he punches her again in the car. It's great. Um, one other person that is a standout here is uh, Charlton Heston. He plays the publisher himself, uh, Jackson Harglow. What doesn't a get a Stephen Kane esque name there too. Doesn't get a lot of uh, time on camera, but I think he does a fairly good job with what he's got. Very reserved for Charlton Heston too. Yeah, yeah. Would have been one of his last films. I was say he died fourteen years later, but I'm imagining. Did he really? Yeah, he died in two thousand eight. Oh. But it, ha- it has. Yeah, it, it was really. I mean, he didn't really do that much else. I mean, he did a few other films uh, within in the 90s, but for the most part, 
Yeah. Probably, and they were probably voiceovers, too. Yeah, basically they were voiceovers. He really didn't do that much else. So it was really one of his final, you know, film appearances where he got, you know, some things to, to do in it. I thought he was fine. You know, like I said, yeah. He was pretty reserved. Um, A nice, uh, nice addition is uh, Francis Bay. In oh, this yeah. film, as the hotel manager, Mrs. Pickman. Uh, Pickman being a reference to Pickman's model from Lovecraft. Made me think of Fallout 4. Yeah. Pickman's Gallery, which I know is also a Lovecraft Also a Lovecraft reference. reference. Yep. Uh, but she's she's very cute in this film, and I like to see her. And you brought up a nice joke from uh, Happy, Happy Gil. Gilmore that she's in. Made me think of, you talks know. Talks about her. My fingers hurt. No, that, no, that wasn't her. It's another old lady. I know, I know. But I just, that's my favorite. That that's what, literally my favorite part in Happy Gilmore nice. is when, like, there's there old Ben Stiller's making the old ladies knit, and the one lady's like, my fingers hurt. And he's like, what's that now? My fingers hurt. Well, your back's going to hurt now, because you just pulled yard duty. Anyone else's fingers hurt? I love it. That part, and when he's, t- you know, um, when Happy's like, I heard you've been, you know, be, you know, make it, you know, torturing these old ladies. And he's like, no, your your grandma's, you know, she's senile. She's delusional. But we know this now. Now we can hear me and you. We'll do this together. Like, and then he gets thrown out of the window. Yeah. It's great. And that, that handlebar mustache he's got in that. It's true. Oh, it's great. It's great. Um, pretty much, though, you're right. Sam Neill has mainly the priority here. I guess the only other person that I would uh, reference is uh, Jurgen Prochnow. Who plays Sutter Kane? And I mean, he he's good, but really, Sutter Kane's not the uh, the main focus of this film. Like having him actually on camera is not the focus that John Carpenter wanted to draw till half the film. Yeah, it was more so to have his godlike presence rather than actual imagery. Which I do, I I do think he's good too. He plays a very good, you know, madman. He's got the curls. Um, oh, and it's interesting too. Like again, it's like is is he being manipulated by these old gods and you know becoming one with them? Is this all just a bunch right. of bullshit? Is, right. Is this all actually not even going on in Sam Neill's mind? Is this just a Sutter Kane story that's you know being v- incredibly meta? It uh it does bring up an interesting point too about uh, Sutter Kane's own agency and mm. uh, as a, the writer, a, as a writer, and like what you think of as a muse. And that the Elder Gods, perhaps Sutter Cain stumbled on something he shouldn't have. And now he's really a puppet to the Elder Gods and really has no control over what he's doing either. And that's uh, probably about as Lovecraftian as it gets when you talk about themes. Because ultimately that's what a lot of his stories boil down to. Is someone stumbling on something they shouldn't. And then probably doing something bad in return when they really don't have control over it or they you know they they think they don't have control my over only it. problem with his whole character is okay so him and sam neil both agree with this concept that humanity's inherently a bad thing right and it needs to be wiped out that, that kind of to boil it down more like for me like historical terms kind of in like a thomas hobbesian type way that man is inherently evil and nasty and brutish and that's why we have government to kind of control our nasty evil ways and have society problem i have is why do they think that though what has happened in both sam i mean sam neil's a little bit more clearer as an insurance uh fraud claims guy he's deals with low lives and scums who are worse i mean who who do arson and and trying to fraud the system so that makes sense but why does sutter kane think this why is that 
why, you know, why is that his thinking? Or is it just enough that he thinks that and because he's the writer, therefore, because he thinks that, he's imprinting that onto Sam Neill, who may or may not be a character in his novel. True. It's more if you like what we're doing right now. Sit down, just kind of think about it. You can probably gather much more away from this film than John Carpenter. I guarantee, ever guaranteed. It's almost kind of a Romero type thing where we're kind of like George Romero just got lucky that a bunch of people overthought his film. True. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely John Carpenter had this in mind, but I think I'm not. I do. You think, can really spiral. I know. I know. I know. Like I said, I do think the general ideas are there. I don't think he's really interested, though, in finding the answers to those ideas. Yeah, right. It's more, here's some ideas, and then let the audience kind of yeah. have things to talk about. Yeah, you know? I, I agree. I, I think he really wanted the audience to spiral, to continue thinking about it. And that at that point, like you can really get into it even more and more. You can Which say, would be well, its own type of madness. Ex- exactly. And, and that's the point. I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I will say, like, ra- wrapping this up, I-, I don't think that In the Mouth of Madness is John Carpenter's best film. I don't think it is probably even close to the top, but it is a very good film regardless. And I think, you know, like you were saying prior to that, even if you're second-tier John Carpenter film, that's still really good. I mean, we're not talking third-tier Ghost of Mars. We're talking second-tier John Carpenter film. Um, I think In the Mouth of Madness is really good. It has a... a um unique idea to it that really started the meta train it's even before scream with the meta uh, aspect to it um really getting that stuff started and in this case less about film to be fair new nightmare new nightmare beat this yeah beat it to the i'm getting to the true yeah it did it did i think it would have been just very very early before this. Well, no, no, you're right. I I agree. I think this is really a really good film. I'm just kind of, especially now that I'm more kind of thinking, opine about it, and this is actually kind of a film that's making me want to have another watch to kind of pick up on other clues. Like, are these intentional things that are put in there or, you know, not? Kind of like how, like, after you watch the thing, and if you're intrigued by it, you're like, I gotta watch it again so I can pick up on more and more of the clues. Um, my, like I said, my question is kind of now, like, why did this not do well? Is it, is it like, I, cause I don't remember as a child any marketing for this film. So do they not market it at all? Is the idea too out there, which at the time wouldn't make sense because the nineties, especially the early nineties were a boon for, you know, films kind of yeah. like that, like that were kind of out there and different, kind of like how the seventies was a great renaissance for a bunch of different films. Cause you could have any idea and filmmakers were like, yeah, sure. We'll do that. Just make money. I mean, I remember the poster for it because my dad owned the video store at this time, and I do remember it. Uh, whether it did well at the box office and stuff, I really don't know. I mean, I think... I just don't made its budget back. Yeah. I mean, I think it did okay. I think as time went on, people recognized the value in it, and perhaps it well, took... Well, probably a, got forgotten. Right. And then, like, I think maybe it took a little while for people to recognize the meta aspect to it and really appreciate it. Uh, but I think now it, it, it's pretty well respected. You know, and, and people are really excited for Scream Factory to do this new release. Well, it's been 25 years now, so. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, you know, it's a lot of time. But I, I'm, I'm just saying, like, I'm... Because, like I said, this film would not get made today. Right. Even if you probably... Unless it was, like, a really well-known... Like, if maybe Christopher Nolan was like, I'm going to do this film. Like, all right, Chris, whatever you say, you know. Yeah. But if you, like, were just Joe... I mean, I'm not saying I, John I, Carpenter was Joe Schmo, but even still, like... I think the closest that it's been is like Secret Window, which would be a Stephen King story. 
which is about a writer coming back and saying you plagiarized my work and stuff like that. And they're not sure whether they're in the story or not. Uh, but and that that was Johnny Depp in that movie. But oh yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, I think uh, you know I think certainly this is a tough film to bring to light, especially because of the circular nature of it. People nowadays are really looking for a concrete answer to the end of the film. And even when we, I talked about it a little bit before hereditary seeing that film has a very, I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say very, but it does have an open ended conclusion. And that really irks some people because they did not like what either that the film didn't come to a specific conclusion and it really let the viewer draw its own conclusions or some people felt that it was even a little bit too conclusive. And so you do run into that aspect of like, do I, do I give the audience the whole thing? Do I tell them what they should feel or do I let them just draw the conclusions from what they are? And I have to respect that John Carpenter really left it and said, here, you know, here's the, here's the outline and you fill in the gaps. I appreciate that. And I think In the Mouth of Madness does that, does it pretty well. And uh, you can take from it what you want to and still have a pretty conclusive film. You know, whatever theme you want to look at. So it's interesting. All right, so let's give it a rating. Out of 10, let's just go with Sutter Kane novels. Why not? Out of 10 Sutter Kane novels... Uh, with the iconic look of the 90s and late 80s <laughs> horror novel book covers. What would you give in The Mouth of Menace? Probably give it an 8. Um, despite like some of the quibbles I have with like kind of how they choose to kind of pick the story and how the acting is overall pretty bland, I think the concept and idea alone is very interesting and intriguing. And very unique um i think kind of like i probably would originally give it like a seven and a half but like the more we kind of talked about it i'm getting getting more and more about like you know just kind of thinking about the overarching themes and stuff and it's it's a very thought-provoking film after you know kind of sitting down talking about for an hour and a half um so I mean, yeah, I I mean, you know, though it does have some very stereotypical early '90s run-of-the-mill acting soundtrack, like it's definitely not Carpenter's best soundtrack. Um, like I said, I think it's very interesting. I think it's a got a very interesting premise that's that's just thought-provoking, like something that you know. Um, well, I, don't know, I guess you know, it's it's kind of right now hard, you know, put into words just kind of how. Yeah. The whole idea. It's mind bending. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It really is diving into the mouth of madness. I guess I would I would probably give this an eight point five. Uh it's surprising that I'd never seen this before. Uh, I've heard a lot about it and uh, I just I guess I never really uh ventured out to see it. Like I said, I remember it at the uh well, the video play, store, well, but they I never played on TV. No, I, no, I, no, I know. never did get a never really got a, a playing uh, on there, but You would think I, this would be like a UPN special, you know. Yeah, I mean it would have been really easy to get away with playing on TV too, because there's not a lot to like edit out or anything. Just the cuss words, yeah, because it's not gory. No, I mean they do show splatters of blood, but anytime like no he, nudity, like, no nudity. Anytime there's you know like when he like at the end when he put the axe in that one kid's head, 
Yeah. You don't see it. They just cut away, and yeah. you get to see him like ah, kind of smile. You yeah. Know. I mean, but I would say that this is uh, probably like I said, like it's second tier John Carpenter, but I think it's really good. Um, I do appreciate some of the things about it, like the uh, bringing to light the late '80s, early '90s book covers of a uh, horror novels, something that I have an affinity for. Um, I think that the, uh, the acting's are right. I mean, Sam Neill's fine. I think sometimes he actually brings out the cheese a little bit and I, I, I tend to enjoy that. Uh, especially when he's being sort of like a jokester, uh, towards the beginning of the film. He's kind of like a, especially like when he pulls out a fucking horn from his dash, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, his from glove, his, his glove, glove compartment. It's like, I want to know the purpose of just carrying that around in well, your glove compartment. Well, as I told you... That's like the cleanest gl- uh, glove compartment ever. Cause he had like yeah. he had a bike horn and a bag of Ruffles it, chips. And I mean, we all know that most people now are carrying a gun in there. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I liked it. I think Sam Neill's okay in this film. But other than that, I think everything really comes together. I like the whole Lovecraftian nature of it, uh, especially that they really play off of the Cthulhu mythos. Um, and I, I think that uh, th- leaving the open-ended approach to this film is something that John Carpenter did really well and allows the audience to really draw their own conclusions. And I think that's pretty much what In the Mouth of Madness does the best, is that it makes it so that there is sort of that paranoid idea of like what actually did happen within this film. Uh, you're not really sure. John Carpenter doesn't give you an answer, so you're forced to come up with it yourself. And that probably makes it even a little bit uh, more appealing appealing to you. Yeah. I would say one of the we didn't touch upon. One of my favorite moments is when after he's leaving Hobbs End and he's on the uh, he's on the bus and he thinks he's gotten rid of the manuscript for the novel and Sutter Kane shows up and he's like, "Do you know my favorite color is blue?" And it, like he wakes up and everything's got this blue tint to it. Yeah, that's all. That, you know that was yeah, all, that's cool. It, cool effect. Yeah, you know, that was that was really cool. And that again brings up that idea that we uh, talked about where the film is really it's sort just, of colorful. In, in certain ways. Well, not like that. And then it also brings up, as you brought up, uh, the whole like delusion side of delusion. So he sees that, and then he sees all this blue, and then like, oh, it's, you know, like, yeah. people are shaking. Like, Just dreaming every bad dream. And, yep. you know. Yeah. All right. In the Mouth of Madness, check it out if you haven't seen it. It's on Scream Factory Blu-ray right now. They just released it. 4K scan. Very good. Looks great. I thought it looked great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm disappointed it took this long to see it. Yeah, me too. All right, so what are we doing next week? Or next time? Next episode? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't have any preferences. I picked this one. Did you have any ideas for for it before we said uh, In the Mouth of Madness? I thought you had mentioned something. What, one-hour photo? Did you? I don't know. I mean, we can do one-hour photo. I'm fine with that. Oh, what was this? I I said that like, one day I'd like to do that. And I've said that in the podcast. Let's do it, because we don't have anything else planned. Let's do one-hour photo. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Great Robin Williams film. It is great. I remember it being great. I don't remember, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but uh, I remember it being a good film. So, all right, Uh, let's do it. uh, Put it on the jacket. Awesome. Spoiler alert. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Well, there you go. You're sure to get a good episode out of you then. Hopefully. Hopefully I don't fuck it up. All right. All right, so uh, you can find us on Podbean, on iTunes, on Stitcher, any other podcasting app. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash blood and black rum podcast. We're on Twitter at blood and black rum. We are uh, basically on pretty much everything else that you can think of for social media. So just find us on there. 
And uh, we have an email address at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. Write to us. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know any movies that you want us to cover. And then also we do have a patron page at the uh, Podbean account, bloodandblackrumpodcast.podbean.com, where you can donate to us. And that means that you get all of our episodes at least one day early if we get them up in time. <laughs> so uh, $1 a month will get you that. So we appreciate anything you can donate. Uh, thank you for listening. We will be back next time with One Hour Photo, Martin's favorite, mo- one of his favorite films of all time, and most certainly his favorite Robin Williams film of all time. Yeah, probably. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> just making sure. All right. Take care. See you later.